0: Corrupted nerds ensconced in the twilight of their bedroom, whether it be in Paris, Singapore, Lagos, Bucharest, or indeed even Sydney. And from somewhere near Sydney, welcome to Corrupted Nerds Conversations, Episode 9. Today, how amateurs are conducting satellite
1: intelligence on North Korea. This whole little weird subculture of people who are obsessed with North Korea and also like using satellite data. I thought, hey, I fit that. Environmental
0: data from Landsat is free. High resolution imagery can be gotten commercially
1: for a couple of grand. People have been using it to track things like the expansion and contraction of the labor camp system there, the status of the nuclear program, and also the progress of launch sequences for their rockets so that they can predict and preempt accurately when a launch is going to take place. And this is a picture that's accessible to anybody. It doesn't rely on you being a government or a military force. Anybody can do it.
0: Yeah, think about that. Corrupted Nerds, a podcast about information, power, security, and all the cybers in a global internet revolution that's changing everything. Hi, I'm Stilgerian. Well, I think it's fair to say that most of us in Western countries, like Australia, have a kind of cartoon view of North Korea. It's either over the top patriotic songs like uh, the national anthem being played here on North Korean TV, Uh, and I think you agree, this is pretty special, isn't it? Or cliched images of military parades and speeches and lots of
1: applause. el sendero con su voz de generación manda el
0: Apparently there's uh, two main TV channels in North Korea, one showing military rallies and political speeches like that one from earlier this year, and the other showing soap operas of hardworking peasants and popular music praising the Kim family and, uh, well, hard work. Apart from those official images of North Korea, uh, the images in our own media are also presumably distorted by our own side's perceptions and spin about what's going on. But our guest today is one of a growing number of people using open or commercially available satellite imagery and other data to construct a more realistic picture of the hermit kingdom. David Jorm, his day job is as a security response engineer for a A well-known Linux vendor associated with headwear, uh, but he also studies geography and mathematics at the University of Queensland, and we're about to hear what he does how he does it and why. Uh, this is the final of three podcasts recorded at the RuxCon 2013 Security Conference in Melbourne. Podcasts made possible through a crowdfunding project at Possible, so a big thank you to all 74 supporters, including special supporter Johan DeWitt and extra special supporters Peter Williams and Sean Richmond. Thank you for the ciders, sir. Much appreciated. And thanks also to commercial sponsors GrowthWise at growthwise.com.au and AVG Tech. Australia and New Zealand at avg.com.au. This interview was recorded on the 27th of October 2013 in Melbourne, Australia.
1: David Vaughan, before we uh, talk about the techniques, why North Korea? That's a great question. I've, I've been fascinated by North Korea for a while now. Um, it's a country that's really unique and it's so eccentric you have, the history there is unparalleled, I mean it has a similar history in a lot of ways to other um, Soviet satellite states and other socialist bloc countries, but it also has this completely weird aspect to it, the cult of personality around the Kims the way that it all ties into this sort of Korean ethno-nationalism in, in a lot of the, um, the propaganda and the rhetoric, it's really unique and fascinating, and so over the years I became a little bit obsessed with it, and and that's what led to this study.
0: Okay, I, in your presentation you gave quite a a, a, a quick potted history of uh, how North Korea got to where it is. Perhaps we can have a, a potted, a repotted, smaller potted version of that.
1: Sure, so the Korean peninsula was historically unified into one country but um, after World War II the advancing Soviets came in one direction, the US and their allies came in another they met in the middle, tried to divide up the country. The, um, the Soviets installed Kim Il-sung in the north as the leader and once he gained power he invaded the south. The US then and its allies joined in defence of the south and they wound up with a stalemate back where they started. Um, so after after the Korean war it sort of settled into a stalemate it was, it was never properly resolved and, and technically they're still at war aren't they? Technically they are still at war there was no treaty there was no am, uh, armistice or anything like that Um, It's just been a ceasefire. It's been a very, very long ceasefire. So the North developed under the auspices of of the Soviet Union, developed a a socialist command economy, and the South developed under the auspices of the US into a a capitalist economy. Um, And really what happened is, what's interesting is, everybody knows that North Korea is a basket case, that it's poor, that it's a totalitarian dictatorship. What's interesting is, up until about the 60s, I think most rational people, or even the early 70s, most rational people would have preferred to have lived in North Korea than South Korea. Why? It was wealthier, because uh, prior to the, to the split, it was the industrial base of the country, so it had more infrastructure to begin with, and once it was linked into the whole Soviet trade bloc, it was quite prosperous. The South was an agrarian backwater, and although it had support from the US, it was run by, by various quasi-fascist dictators... So, you know, it really wasn't so great until the 70s when South Korea um, got democracy and underwent a a huge economic transition to the economic powerhouse that it is today.
0: And as we know now, you know, it's huge. It's technologically sophisticated, at least to the extent that it's making a lot of technological products. The North, we know little about. It is poor, poor. Is that just because of the, the kind of Soviet command and control style of economy? I mean, the East Germany effect, the West Germany?
1: There is, there is that, um, but while, it was sti- while the Soviet trade bloc was still running, it was doing fairly well. And what you see is most, there's a few notable exceptions, you could argue Cuba and a few others, but pretty much all of the former socialist countries or communist countries gradually transition to something resembling a market economy. Even in the case of China, Vietnam, yeah, it's not completely capitalist, but it resembles a market economy, and they've been extremely successful. Vietnam, uh, their economy's been growing at 9% a year, China 8% a year for how long now? Decades? They're doing quite well. Because of these reforms. But North Korea never initiated any, even vaguely market oriented reforms. The, the impetus, of the, the original reform in China, was that they, they went to the family obligation system or the family livelihood system of a- agriculture. So the idea was instead of having this big collective farm with 20 different families in it, you had um, just one family responsible for the agricultural output of their farm. They had to meet a quota that they would give to the state and then they would get to keep all the rest. So all of a sudden the agricultural output went through the roof and all the other reforms followed. But North Korea never went through anything even like that. Um, and, and even though they know that that would be a path to economic success, they intentionally do not go down that path.
0: Because that allows, presumably, the central government to bring in all of those resources and decide exactly how everything will be distributed.
1: Exactly. And and what's interesting, though, is, is a lot of analysis has, has gone into this. People say, why don't they take the path of China? China's this... Um, role model for success. You know, China's not perfect, but it's a lot better than North Korea, and it's a role model for, for for success in some sense. Why don't they follow that path? The main reason is that, according to the analysis that I've read, that it would threaten the um, the elite. It would threaten the leadership because their power base is really contingent upon the propaganda that they have, and the propaganda states that. The socialist system is the only way to become prosperous. That outside um, forces outside countries are, are dangerous to be avoided. You don't want to get involved in trade with them. You should be self-sufficient. So in order to maintain the truth or semblance of truth of that propaganda, they cannot instigate market reforms. The other thing is it would create a class of wealthy individuals. The middle class. The middle class. Um, or even, as you see in China now, the, the billionaires who have nothing to do with the whole um, uh, co- sort of Communist Party structure that is independently wealthy and they can't deal with that it would bring down the government
0: So we have uh, uh, as you say a fascinating country that is yeah. almost a microcosm of the past it's, it's an example I suppose of what, what might have happened if the Soviets won the Cold War instead of the West perhaps I...
1: A lot of people who have gone there said it's a throwback to the 1950s but that's what it feels like, yeah. But with
0: computers and but, missiles, but computers and, and nukes.
1: missiles and nukes and satellites, ostensibly, yeah. It's uh... so that's the interesting thing is that although North Koreas are extremely poor, because they have such a aggressive militaristic position, they've invested a lot of resources in the development of military technology, and they have a very large standing army. And they have, even though a lot of their their technology is outdated, they do have quite a lot of advanced military hardware and technology. Um, interestingly, though, a lot of this is really there for a very pragmatic purpose, which is that it can be used to extort blackmail. If you look at the history of the nuclear plants there, there's, there's a clear pattern. You start up the nuclear plant, scare everybody. They come in and say you have to shut it down. You say no. Eventually, you cut a deal where you get millions of tons of food and oil, and then you wait three years and do it all again.
0: Well, yeah, either the nuclear plant or it's a missile test. and we They, they seem... You know, just to be timed just as there's an important international meeting, like ASEAN or NATO or something like that. And this like is that. this
1: is absolutely intentional. Yeah, this is this is by design. It's one of the the key pillars of keeping the economy there ticking. Um, and this is actually a good segue back to the research that I did on food really? production because one of the one of the problems that they have there is the country has never been self sufficient in food production, even even before. Um, the korean war because it was the industrial area in the south was the agricultural area it would be like um i'm trying to think of a good example but you know some. it would be like saudi arabia being uh, independent in food it's never yes, gonna happen you right can't it's, eat sand. yeah it's, it's um
0: or the american midwest with hmm. all, of, all of the cow states of the u.s were suddenly tried you know tried for independence from the rest or vice versa um, you know, you ain't going to have beef burgers in New York without
1: Kansas boys and girls. Yeah. Idaho. Exactly, exactly. So so um, when they were embedded in the, the web of trade for the socialist bloc, they were able to, they were the industrial state, they got raw inputs, they shipped them out, they got food, it was all fine. But now trying to op- operate in complete isolation they don't have the ability to feed their own population. It's a very mountainous country. There's not that much arable terrain, and it's a highly variable climate that's subject to both droughts and floods. So in the the mid-'90s, this all really came to a head. There was severe flooding, and this flooding ruined the year's crop to a large extent. And this triggered a famine. The famine lasted for about three or four years, and probably several million people starved to death is no good statistics. And uh, what's interesting is that Obviously, the food situation in North Korea was already precarious. But when you have a flood situation like that, it washes away a lot of topsoil. But then after that, you have a famine. So we have floods all the time in Australia. Uh, washes away some topsoil, and then they rebuild it over time. But what they had there was, as soon as they were able to grow any crops, people would just raid the fields to get whatever food they can. They were picking them bare. They were stripping the bark off of trees and boiling the bark and eating that. And so then the trees would die, and then more topsoil would wash away. It's sort of a... a vicious circle. So I had a theory that as a result of this uh, degradation to the land, that the agricultural output, the agricultural capacity of that land was permanently reduced, or at least permanently for timescales that are relevant to, to a human being in one lifetime. Um, and so I did some I did some research into that and, and found that that was in fact likely to be the case.
0: So how did you do that research? I mean, this gets to the, the topic of your presentation, doesn't it? It's the satellite uh, imagery.
1: Right. So um, my academic background is in uh, environmental science, uh, climate forecasting, environmental modelling. And so there's a lot of well-established techniques to do this kind of thing in those fields. There's uh, global um, environmental monitoring satellites, such as Landsat, which is run by the US government and gives all of the uh, data and imagery away for free. It's centrally archived. You can go and download it for free. And... uh, and those, uh, those satellites, those environmental monitoring satellites, give you multispectral imagery. So you get a value between zero and one in the blue band, a value between zero and one in the red band, the green band, the near-infrared band, the SIR band, whatever they all are. And so it turns out that if you look at the ratio between the visible red and the near-infrared band in multispectral satellite imagery, this is a very strong proxy for the amount of plant growth on the ground. And a high ratio means you've got a lot of healthy green plants. A low ratio means you've got either not healthy, not much plants, or something else, some other surface, you know, asphalt or raw dirt or something. So I used a a time series analysis of Landsat data, looking at that um, NIR to visible R ratio, and I controlled it for rainfall. You can get gridded rainfall data globally because they measure the rainfall in, say, Seoul in South Korea or in Vladivostok in Beijing, and you can interpolate it, and it interpolates quite accurately. So, um, so I got gridded global rainfall data. They can also get it from satellites. And, uh, and I compared that to the satellite imagery because if you have a period where there's a lot of rainfall, well, of course, there's going to be a lot of plant growth. What you want to see is whether for the same amount of rainfall before the famine as opposed to after the famine, you now got less plant growth. And that's exactly what I saw. That was, that was the outcome of the study. Now, those results are tentative. I had a limited sample size. The correlations were strong the analysis was solid, but I would only call that a, um, a good tentative conclusion that my, my theory was supported.
0: You're, of course, not the only person doing this kind of research. I mean, there's quite a community of uh, people pulling out satellite data and doing things.
1: Yeah, that's, that's where this got really interesting. So I started out doing this study as my undergraduate um, sort of thesis, my undergraduate research project at university. And as a result of, of digging through all the satellite imagery and looking through all the relevant websites and so on, I, f- I came across the fact that there were all these other North Korea watches, There's this whole little weird subculture of people who are obsessed with North Korea and also like using satellite data. And I thought, hey, I fit that. So... Um, <laughs> So started to, to dig into it, and a lot of the, the stuff that I was doing was very coarse resolution satellite imagery. It's for environmental modeling, you're looking at things with resolution on the ground of 5 square meters per pixel or 10 square meters per pixel, whereas if you actually want to pick up visible features, you want like one meter or less per pixel. And, uh, and that imagery is available. It's more difficult to get It's only available through Digital Globe and some other commercial providers, rather than these free government programs for environmental monitoring. But if you can get a hold of it, you can do some some fascinating stuff. And people have been using it to track things like the expansion and contraction of the labour camp system there, the status of the nuclear program, and also the progress of launch sequences for their rockets, so that they can predict and preempt accurately when a launch is going to take place.
0: Now, this is where it gets really interesting, because when you talk about one metre resolution, that was the same resolution as the early military spy satellites of the the 1960s. There you go. Um, Which means you can spot at least aircraft on an airfield. They're a little blob, but you can tell that's what it is, and missiles and so forth. Uh, We're now getting... Imagery, which uh, a former Air Force intelligence officer tells me is stuff that years ago he would love to have, and now it's freely available. Or Or at least least
1: commercially available. If you've got the money, I think you can get a good data set for a few thousand dollars if you're willing to pay, so it's not inaccessible. Um, Yeah, and that's opening up a whole field of possibilities because in the past, well... North Korea is, is an interesting case because it has no good sources of information really either going into or coming out of the country. It's very closed. And so to get any idea of what's actually happening on the ground, you don't have any good sources. You could listen to the official news over there, but I, I think we all know how accurate that is. You can get the Western media, but where are they getting their information from? And it's obviously got its own spin for political purposes and so on. Then you can get the testimony of refugees that have left North Korea which is, which is probably fairly accurate, but again, what a, how, how correct are their actual facts? If they say something is happening in this camp, well, which camp? Where is it? Is, is, that, is that an embellished fact or a real fact? Very hard to say. So by combining the testimony of people that have left the country with this high-resolution satellite imagery, you start to get, at least in my opinion, a fairly accurate picture of what's happening on the ground. And this is a picture that's accessible to anybody who can conduct an interview or get a hold of some commercial satellite imagery. It doesn't rely on you being a government or a military force. Anybody can do it. And this is what you see in the North Korea Watcher community. There's academics, there's private individuals, there's companies. I'm sure that there's spooks and government agencies, but they're not talking about it so much. Everybody's able to access this capability, and I don't think we had that in the past at all.
0: I'm going to... You to speculate a bit more about where all that might go in, in the future and in the longer term because the things that occur to me one, as you say, all of this stuff is becoming available and that is only going to increase in the future. Mm-hmm. We have the ability to start launching, you know, everything from drones or communication systems, uh, there's stuff that can be done covertly and illegitimately. Um, the tools to do this stuff are becoming. Easy, um, you, you know, things like even video editing was once an incredibly specialist task and now everyone can do that on a commodity level, I was about to say PC, on their phone. Right. You know, the where will this, this end up, do you think? What, what, what are your thoughts?
1: That's a great question. I think that there's, there's t- you'll have two competing things there and we've seen this with most of these kind of technological developments that start to put power into the hands of individuals that the technology advances and that uh, greater and greater capability comes along, but eventually you reach a point where that capability starts to tread on people's toes and then censorship starts to rear its head. So in my presentation I, um, I touched on this just a little bit, that at the moment the commercially available sources of satellite data have very limited, in fact in my view surprisingly limited, censorship there was there's a few prisons in the u.s. like uh, maximum security prisons that are blurred out so you can't plan a, a jailbreak there's some some u.s. military installations some mysterious stuff in the desert in china and kind of that's about it everything else is is visible which really surprises me um and i wouldn't be surprised if once these capabilities you know who wants to track the development of the nuclear program in another country who wants to track what's on the ground at an air force base in Australia or in India or in, you know, European country or the US, they can all do that now via this imagery and I really wouldn't be surprised if it gets to a point where the government agencies start saying to these commercial providers you, you can't keep giving away this imagery, this is classified uh, it's not hard to see that trajectory occurring, so I think you'll probably see the two collide, where the capability of this technology collides with attempts to suppress it And then this is kind of the story of our age, right? You can see this happening in so many dimensions in the technology world now. Um, And usually the censorship fails. The technology wins and the censorship fails. But in this case, the stakes are very high. And the potential for censorship is very high because there's only so many satellites. Like, for example, you try... I'm I'm thinking this is a bit of a stretch of an analogy. But I'm thinking about the attempts of people to control um, intellectual property, in movies and music. It's just a losing battle. You can't, you know, anybody can share files with anybody else on the planet. You can't get control of it.
0: I mean, that's the the whole point of the internet is to allow anyone to share any data they have with anyone else.
1: Exactly. And once the satellite data is on the ground and processed, anyone can share it with anyone else. But there's only so many satellites up there getting it and they're all controlled by either government agencies or large commercial enterprises. So your bottleneck to apply a censorship filter is quite small.
0: Personally, as a final question. What's uh, the next project for you in, in this arena?
1: Yeah, actually, um, somebody that, uh, that attended this, um, this conference came up to me afterwards, and she has a background in international relations. So we're going to work on expanding this research to look at the information flows into North Korea and how those are controlled and how those, those uh, barriers are starting to be breached. And we're also going to look at the geopolitical and economic ramifications of the situation in North Korea and try and put this into a a broader synthesis and uh, and present it at a conference in the future.
0: We'll definitely be back in touch uh, at that point, David Vaughan. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. And that's it for Episode 9 of Corrupted Nerds Conversations. Episode notes and links to all the things we mentioned, as uh, well as those audio grabs and some of the stuff David Jor mentioned in his Ruxcon presentation are at corruptednerds.com. If you haven't already done so, you can subscribe either at iTunes or at SoundCloud or by RSS in your choice of software. And whether you subscribe or, or not, please leave a comment and tell your friends. And watch the website for a couple couple of written stories from Breakpoint and Ruxcon coming very, very soon. I'm Stilgerian, see you next time.